This episode is sponsored by Elixir Sips. Elixir Sips is a screencast series that will take you from Elixir newbie to experienced practitioner. If you're interested in learning Elixir but don't know where to start, then Elixir Sips is perfect for you. In two short screencasts each week, between 5 and 15 minutes, Elixir Sips currently consists of over 16 hours of densely packed videos in more than 100 episodes, and there are more every week. Elixir Sips is brought to you by Josh Adams, expert Rubyist and CTO of a software development consultancy, Isotope 11. Elixir Sips. Learn Elixir with a pro. Find out more at elixirsips.com. This episode is sponsored by Less Accounting. Let's face it, there are a lot of things about being an entrepreneur that we all hate. One of the things that I really hate is bookkeeping. Less Accounting has just started a new service where you can get your bookkeeping done for a really low cost each month. If you're interested, go to freelancershow.com slash bookkeeping to go check it out. I signed up and they had me all caught up within a couple of days. It was awesome, and I can't recommend them highly enough. Their people are professional and good at what they do. So go check it out once again at freelancershow.com slash bookkeeping. All right, so welcome to the Freelancer Show Q&A. Looks like we have a few people in the chat room, and uh, we have Eric and Jonathan here. So you guys want to uh, say hello real quick and maybe talk about what you've got going on, and then we'll start answering questions. Hello real quick. Hey, how's it going? I just get back from Vegas, so I'm a little dazed and confused. What were you doing in Vegas? I was speaking at a conference called MERTEC, which is stands for Multi-Unit Restaurant Technology. So I was speaking to people like Taco Bell and Panera and McDonald's about how to do their mobile strategy. Ah, uh, gotcha. Sounds like fun. It was fun, actually. I haven't been to Vegas in about 20 years. Just, just a few hours from here. It's the same same way I left it. <laughs> nice. Very smoky, very smoky town. Yeah, I'm going to be down there in a couple of weeks. I think you're going to be there too, aren't you, Eric? For um, microconf. Yeah. yeah, for microconf. I'm trying to. I don't know my dates. I have travel to see family, come back at home for two days, and then I fly back out. So I'm like so lost to what today is and what's going on. Gotcha. Yeah, I finagled the ticket, so I'm going to be there too. So should be good. So I'll just avoid you then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I smell like Utah, so you can uh, you can find me a, a mile away. Anyway, oh, what's Utah smell like? <laughs> well, my neighborhood, there's a mink farm up the road, and you can smell it outside, so that's always pleasant. Wow. Anyway, so should we start answering questions? Oh, we have Reuben yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. Can you guys hear me? Yep. Yay. 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 Okay. Phew. You sound official. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Officially frustrated with our internet connection. Yeah. Ruby Rogues, we talked to somebody from Ireland, and their connection was bad, too, so maybe it's that whole transatlantic thing. No, no, it's just my house. Oh, okay. Basically, my wife and I were watching a movie on, uh, we're watching The, the Good Wife on uh, Amazon streaming over the last few days, and each day it became progressively worse. So this, of course, led us to take drastic measures, which is... While I was out at a client's office, call an electrician and randomly do things to the internet connection. Needless <laughs> to say, I returned home and nothing's working and I have no idea what's going on now. But fortunately, I have a neighbor with an unsecured network. Yay, neighbor! <laughs> so, I won. <laughs> so, there's that. I can just this, see the neighbor. This episode of the Freelancer Show is brought to you by the Sapir family, yes. <laughs> yeah, the neighbor's like, honey, we're trying to watch The Good Wife and it's running slow. Get the electrician over here. That's exactly it. in the neighbor's house. There you go. All right. Let's go ahead and answer some questions. 
Um, so we got some questions okay. beforehand. Yeah. The first one is, at what point does it make sense to register a corporation? Apart from liability, I assume, if you have profits to reinvest in the business. Well, do, do you guys have corporations? I have an I LLC. Do. Yeah, I have an S-Corp. I like the equivalent, the Israeli equivalent of an S-Corp. I mean, it's obviously very different in different countries. But that was mostly for tax reasons. Basically because if, if I were self-employed, registered self-employed with the government, then I'd have to pay American Social Security on top of what I pay in Israel. Because mm -hmm. there's no tax treaty for that. But I'm just sort of used to now the idea of having separate business and me. And I like that separation. And I have separate bank accounts and separate banks. And I find it's very convenient and useful. But it's way more expensive. There's no doubt about it. Well, you should do that even if you don't have a corporation, if you're a sole proprietorship or anything else, you should have separate bank accounts and all that just because, I mean, it's oil and water. You shouldn't mix it. And IRS or taxing authority would get mad at that no matter how it's classified. Yeah, my dad actually well, and then I had, as a yeah. DBA. And, uh, yeah, so he, he just keeps the two accounts separate. I mean, I, I had problems years ago where I had two separate accounts, even for my business, like a fully incorporated business and me personally in the same bank branch, but they were two separate accounts. But, you know, if I wanted a loan, they'd be like, well, you know, we see your corporation is having some problems now. Or, like, they would basically, they saw it as the same, which is 100% illegal, but they did it anyway. And so I got advice saying, you must put your accounts in two separate banks so that they can't see, they can't know. And I strongly advise that as well to everyone I know. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm going to assume that the person who's asking the question is in the United States. Yeah, I bet. Uh, so for me, yeah, I mean, I have a corporation. I've had a corporation pretty much since I went freelance. Um, I think I filed the paperwork, and then my accountant and attorney figured it out so that it was somehow like retroactive for the two months that I was filling out the paperwork. And I, I, I know it varies from state to state as well, but... Yeah, so there are a few benefits that I've seen, and the main one is the liability question. You know, just make sure that you're careful so you don't pierce the corporate veil, and you want to talk to an attorney to understand exactly the ways you can do that. Just so people know, piercing the corporate veil means you, you do something in your business, in the name of your business, but you do it in such a way where instead of your business getting sued, you're sued also. Right. Uh, and we can get into that in a minute because that's kind of a sketchy thing for professional services. Yeah, right. <laughs> But uh, anyway, so it made it possible for me to get a bank account in my business's name and all of that stuff. But you can get a DBA or just open another account in your name. But anyway, it, it makes it a whole lot easier in a lot of ways for me to just keep track of things and understand this is the businesses and this is my personal stuff. You know. But the other thing is, is it varies from state to state and country to country. So you probably want to talk to an accountant or attorney just to make sure that you understand how that works. One other benefit I get, though, is a tax benefit, and that is that because my wife owns 90% of the business, I only have to pay 10% of the self-employment tax. And there are some ways that I've worked that out with my accountant, and he's had the way that we manage things stand up to an audit. So just to put that out there, you know, you can talk to your attorney or accountant and find ways of avoiding kind of the tax penalty for being self-employed. The bottom line is you have to talk to a lawyer. I mean, yeah. none of us can really give you advice. You have to figure out what your risk profile is and how much it makes sense to pay for. You know, it's it can be expensive. Uh, it's an expense that you could skip, but then you have increased risk. So when I first started, I immediately, the first two things I did when I went solo was to find a lawyer that friends recommended and uh, find a financial planner. And I had them hash it out. 
and just told me basically, you know, what are my options? And I picked one. Yep. You know, and if you have to pay him a couple hundred bucks for an hour of time, it's completely worth it. Yeah, that's what I did. And it cost me, yeah, a few hundred dollars. Everything set up. You have to understand how it works and what you can and can't do with it. But yeah, they should be able to explain it to you. I just, I just want to say, in terms of uh, piercing the corporate veil, so one of my fun stories from when I set up my uh, bank account for my company here in Israel was, um, they gave me, of course, a whole bunch of forms to sign. And one of them was that if the bank ever wants to get money from the company and the company doesn't ha- can't pay up, then they can come get it from me personally. And I was like, wait a second, the whole point of a company is that doesn't happen. Yeah, well, that's a little different. But yeah, like you're, uh, you're like co-signing the loan, or you're personally guaranteeing the loan. But yeah, mm-hmm. piercing the corporate veil right. is liability-wise. Like, could you be sued? Because the whole point of a corporation is people can put in money, but put in assets into a group, and then you can go and do things that are supposed to be higher risk than what you would do normally as a person. And the idea is that the only the only finances and assets you have at risk are what you put in. So it's the idea you put a, a million dollars into this corporation. It does stuff. If the corporation tanks, you dissolve the corporation, you're only at risk for a million dollars. That's the, the your liability. The problem is, is if you also work in the corporation, then you as a professional or as a person can also be sued or be held liable. And so that's where, like, if you're a solo freelancer or something like that, it gets really, really sketchy of, like, yeah, you might have a corporation, but if you did the work, they might sue your corporation and you and basically pierce the corporate veil that way. And so that's where, what's it called? The insurance, uh, errors and omissions and all that stuff kind of comes in, or that's where like your personal risk profile comes in. Like if you're, if you're single, you're renting, you don't have any assets other than your business and the cash in your business, it's not as big of a deal if you own your, compared to you own, own your own house, you have a second business, maybe you have some rental property, that sort of thing. And that's why talking to a financial planner and a tax attorney and an attorney and, uh, or sorry, tax, accountant and a normal account and maybe your bookkeeper like having a whole like mastermind group is probably a good thing to do mm-hmm. all right anything else on that one before we go to the next question i think i mentioned in the past you have to do a lot of paperwork like uh, annual minutes or um, organizational meetings all that stuff i bought i'm trying to look for it but i bought a kit that has all that it comes with like the stock certificates a little official <laughs> seal for the company um, you can get all that stuff pretty cheap online and so it takes a bit of work to kind of go through and do it all, but that like makes it more legit and helps prevent companies from piercing the corporate veil. You know, if you're doing, you know, have all your ducks in a row, you have all your paperwork right, then you are a corporation, you're acting as a corporation. And I think I paid like maybe 100, maybe 200 bucks for all that ship. So it's really not that expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have my, my lawyer does that for, it takes him about a half an hour a year, which amounts to about 100 bucks. So I just, he just sends me the stuff and I sign it and that's it. Yeah, but does it come with a cool little seal that you can punch things randomly? <laughs> I'm afraid he has that. I'm afraid that's Actually, it's in, in what I think must be a throwback to the British mandate, Israeli companies need to have this stamp, and you need to actually, like, there are places where a signature is not enough, you have to stamp things, and technically I have to put a stamp on every check that the company puts out, but my bank has been pleasantly ignoring that for a few years now already. But in terms of minutes, I mean, in terms of company minutes, the only times I actually need to do minutes are like basically when my accountant tells me to, and he says, you need to have a company meeting that says X. I'll have my secretary type it up, and then you'll just sign it. And I say, okay, sounds great. I yeah, that's like a good idea. I feel like we're making it sound harder than it really is. I mean, it's you just write a couple checks and get some professionals to advise you. And I mean, maybe maybe a year, 
uh, I spend seven hundred and fifty dollars or maybe a thousand bucks to keep all my ducks in a row, but I don't. It doesn't take me fifteen minutes. So, right, yeah. For me, because I have an LLC, it's I think it's a hundred bucks, but a lot of that's because I have an LLC. I also have a DBA for the LLC, which is just stupid, whatever. And I think it might take me half an hour, maybe half an hour to an hour a year, because Oregon has all electronic filing to do. You know, have a meeting with myself just to write down what happened last year, print it out, sign it, tell Oregon, yes, I did this, and move on. It's it's just some template in my calendar. It's pretty easy to do, especially you can even schedule around tax time and just know as a habit, like around tax time you have to do this meeting or file stuff, and it's pretty pretty easy, pretty straightforward now. Yeah, yep. for us, we have a house and kids and stuff, so it's worth it to me to have the that sort of barrier between, you know, basically the, the liability coverage. And I also have uh, errors and in emissions insurance because a lot of big companies just insist that you have it or they won't even consider hiring you. Yep. And again, that's easy. You can just apply for it online. I think I pay like, I don't even know how much I pay. It's like 50 bucks a month or something for a million or $2 million in coverage. Yep. Wow. Yeah, it was something like that when I was looking at it, but I never got it because it's not been an issue. Of course, I won't know that it wasn't an issue until it's an issue, right? So... <laughs> <laughs> all right, next question. Do you umbrella all your products brands product brands as DBAs under the main under a main corp? So I don't. My corporation just owns all of it and it all kind of goes to the same place. My bookkeeper yeah. keeps it all straight. That's a good question. I'm about to I, I make think... that decision and I'm not sure oh, which no. I want to do. I, I don't understand what the difference is. Like are you talking about like having different corporations versus like different public faces to the same corporation? So a DBA is uh, doing business as, in, so it's essentially just another name on the same corporation. But what it allows you to do is open a bank account under that name and stuff like that. So, for example, my dad has a DBA for his business, and it's, you know, so it's Dr. Max S. Wood, DDS. But he as a person, all of his personal stuff is just Max Wood. So, you know, he can then open a bank account under his business name and act as that entity or as himself. But... All of the liability, profits, etc., are all counted under the main corporation. So I can understand doing that for yourself, but why would you, if you have a corporation, then use the DBA in addition to that? Or did I misunderstand the question? It's like a marketing thing, isn't it? Yeah. So it's a question of how you want to split up the marketing, how you want to split up the liability. So I'm I'm starting a straight-up coaching thing for dev shops, which is very different than my core business, which is you know, mobile strategy for consumer brands. It's a completely different thing. So the question right now is, I'm definitely going to have, I'm definitely splitting it off my main website, so there's going to be a clear marketing differentiation. And the question is, do I also go and make a separate corporation? And the, I guess the determining factor is if one of them got sued into oblivion, I wouldn't want it to affect the other one. Yeah, okay. but I don't think the DBA yeah. shields you from that. No, the DBA, no. I'm sure it won't. I would have no, to set a separate corpse. The yeah. way I see it is, you got... Uh, I'm trying to make sure I have my hands in here. You got liability on one side, um, and then on the other side you have like I just own stuff. So most people own like 20 different websites, and the websites have different names, might be marketed differently, but they're all owned by one thing. And on the other side is liability. You have like six corporations. Maybe you have a corporation per website, and then in the middle is kind of the DBA. The DBA would let you talk about yourself as whatever the DBA is, like you know some whatever Joe Smo marketing. The difference is, is with the DPA, you can then go and open a bank account for that branch of your business, that department or division mm-hmm. or whatever. But as far as liability is concerned, it still just targets your corporation or whatever you have. I've seen or I've heard uh, people doing multiple corporations when they're doing really funky asset stuff. 
So like in real estate, it happens a lot. Like someone might own the building, have a mortgage on the building. The person also has a second corporation. That second corporation does maintenance for the building that the first corporation pays in there. So it's like this weird way the assets and incomes allocated. And most of that's just to get into lower tax rates or to have expenses categorized differently and also to isolate liability. Like if you have workers in the maintenance side, but you don't want them to get hurt and actually be able to, to sue your building, you have it split up. But I think for is most that people, why this companies is, do that? Yeah, I think um, for most people and people who are listening, that's like overkill. Like you might need <laughs> you you need zero to one corporations for for most things unless you're doing something high risk. Yeah. So the DBA is mostly just an accounting tool. It's just okay, which bucket do I want to put this stuff in? And at least the way I see it. And so unless I had a large number of expenses and income transactions coming in from multiple streams and it was impossible to untangle on my single bank account. You know, that, that's where I'd be looking. But even then, you know, you can open multiple accounts under the same corp. Yeah, one guy I know, he has, I think they're corporations, but he has a corporation for uh, his consulting and then a corporation for his like product stuff he has. He had them separate, so he, if he's doing on-site stuff for a company and like loses their production database and his consulting stuff gets sued, it doesn't destroy his product business. And so he had that, you know, that big isolation there. Um, that's, I think, the the highest extent people would have for this. If you're like actually trying to transition or have multiple businesses that are separate. I think, given my ineptitude at bookkeeping and everything already and the number of times my accountant calls me every month saying, you're missing this paperwork and that paperwork. I think that if I were to have another corporation, <laughs> they would come over here with pitchforks and torches. So I'm, I'm glad to know that you think most people need between zero and one. That's quite a relief. Yeah, and this goes back to the advisors. I mean, talk to your attorney and your tax advisors and all that and they'll tell you, be like, yeah, you don't need this or it might be like, yeah, actually you're at such a level that you could save $40,000 a year if you split this into two corporations and there, there's there's the benefit right there that you can actually say, okay, well, I'll, I'll deal with the extra paperwork for that extra income. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but most of the time when you're saying another corporation, what you're usually talking about is something more along the lines of setting up another LLC or something that's owned in part or whole by yourself or by your other corporation. All right, next question. Does this ring a bell? What was the comical but legit contract you mentioned on a show recently? Curtis mentioned it. I'm trying to find the contract killer. Here we go. I got a link. I'll put it in the chat. But what it is is it's a it's a simple readable contract that apparently holds up in court. Anyway, it's not all legalese. Blah 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 blah. I don't remember much about the contract, and certainly I think a funny contract would stand out. Yeah, I worked for a company that, in their terms of service, they had all kinds of references to like Saturday Night Live and stuff. It was pretty funny. <laughs> but you know, as long as it covers all of the important stuff, and it you know the funny stuff doesn't compromise that in any way, then yeah. Man, I never use like what you'd consider a legal contract with any of my any of my clients. I never have. So you use a, an illegal contract. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, we, we talked to you about the price of stuff. Besides the money laundering and drug smuggling, it's I'm sure fine. And I only take cash. Yeah, there you go. I would just give them their money back. I mean, Eric just said, you know, if you deleted somebody's production database, you're going to get sued. And I've got insurance for that, but I would just never sue someone. I, well, I just have no, it makes no sense to me. I would just give them their money back. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I actually just had this conversation with, um, actually, they brought in their legal department. A lot of, not a lot, some companies just giving them their money back isn't enough. 
in this case, the person was talking about if I, because I'm doing software development, so if I did something and it actually exposed them to liability and had them have loss of business, they would want to get their money back and sue me for damages, sue me for a whole bunch of stuff. So it's like, you know, I might... The contract's not going to protect you, really. I mean, it's going to put you out of business. The lawsuit will put you out of business. Well, but the thing is, the contract would at least specify terms. So if it did go to court, it might be a bit different or they might not take it to court because they might be like, oh, well, we got there's a strong contract preventing it. But I mean, you know, like you said, anyone can sue anyone for anything, even if it's wrong and just drag it out and kill it that way. But I don't know. I mean, it's it's scary as a software developer to think about having, you know, a very basic contract because of all the liability in the work I do. Yeah, I mean, I've done it before, and I've worked at a firm before that did get sued wrongly, and it put them out of business, basically. And they were right, and they won. But it still mm-hmm. just, it basically destroyed the company. So if somebody sued me, I'd just fold. Yeah. I wouldn't even want the three years of worrying about it. I'd just be like, if you're really that unhappy, you can put me out of business if you want. But I don't see how that gets anybody anything. Let's work this out. Let me give you your money back. But I'm not going to court. And yeah. that's, that might actually be a good kind of reason to have a corporation or something there and make sure it's completely shielded and not like, yeah. you know, they can't get through is if they do close out your, this corporation, you can just, you know, do another one. It's a bit of work and, you know, you have to do it the right way, but that kind of gives you the, you know, the throwaway high risk ability of it. Yeah, that's yeah. my, exactly my thinking. All right, we got us another tax question here. We kind of went into that with the liability and corporation stuff, but what are your thoughts on expensing home office for tax purposes? I often work in a coffee shop, and the tax documentation clearly states that you can only expense the percentage of time you use your home office for work. In my case, it's only about 40% of the time. I mean, I have a home office, as you can see behind me. I'm in the basement. And after talking to financial professionals, they were like, you can expense that if you want, but, and this is, this is just what they told me. I'm not saying this is going to be true for everyone, but they were like, you can expense this if you want, but it's kind of a red flag to have a home office and that the IRS in my case would be much more interested in going over my stuff with a fine tooth comb. And when we looked at like how much I would actually be saving, I don't expense anything from my house. So, you know, it's, you got to look at, the real dollars, I think, mm-hmm. when you think about, is it really worth it to com- even just to complicate my taxes? Is it worth, you know, if it's a hundred bucks a year, I'm going to save to complicate my taxes. I'll probably end up losing that just from paying my accountant to do the more complicated taxes. If it's $10,000, okay, maybe. But in my case, I don't remember the number, but in my case, if I expensed my home office as, you know, I, I think it was something like 20, 25% of my house, then okay, it was like some low amount of money of you know, 500 bucks a year or something that I potentially save, and I was like, I don't even want to deal with thinking about that. So and see, I didn't even talk to him about the risk of getting audited because they started asking all the questions, and I was just like, you know what? How much do you think this is going to get me? And yeah, they they gave me a figure pretty close to the the five six hundred dollars, and I was just like, just don't worry about it. Because yeah. I'd have been sitting there for another hour, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and then I have to go back over all my bills and, oh, geez, <laughs> right? Now you're saving receipts and stuff like that. And it's just yeah. like, oh, man. Yeah, yeah and see, we, for me, like, we do that. We, no, sorry. I said, like, we, I talked to that with my account because I already had the business. Um, we were renting at first, and then I, we bought a house. And just the size of my office and how much I'm in here and all that. It actually is a benefit to us, but it is like, yeah, I'm taking on, you know, potential audit risk, but I'm very meticulous with all my receipts, personal and business. So like, 
it's not that much more effort for me. Um, I actually, uh, last week, I actually compiled it all, put it all in there, like, you know, how much internet did I use, power, all that stuff. And it, it does add up, but it's, it is a risk. Like, is it worth having all that? And I think once you have it established, once you, like, kind of explain to the IRS, like, here's how I'm deducting everything, the next few years it gets easier and easier. You know, once it's, versus, like, you know, hey, it's just someone started up trying to get a tax deduction, and it's not really a business, it's more of a hobby. Yeah. So, so we have, like, I have a home office, and my wife also works from home. And so for years now, I guess we moved into this house in 99. And from that time, we've been expensing about 25%. I guess 25% is what my accountant says we can use for the office. And it saves us actually a, a ton of money because it means 25% of electricity, gas, water, things that if we fix it in the house and it has to do with the business, then, you know, so one of the rooms that we use for the business um, I don't know, the newspaper that we get delivered, uh, I mean, we, we actually can expense a fair amount in addition to real estate taxes. But you're not, 25% you're not, of our, you're not s- saving the 25%. That's 25% that you're not taxed on. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's coming out of the business as opposed to it's coming out of me personally, right? Um, although it does become then a business expense, which you know reduces my taxes. So my impression is, maybe I'm just being foolish here, but my impression is that we're actually saving a fair amount of money by doing that. But, again, it's like different countries work in different ways. And uh, I know that the IRS has all sorts of crazy red flags. So not crazy if you're coming after me. Not crazy. But, um, I mean, in Israel, they, they have other red flags, and that's definitely, that's definitely not one of them as far as I know, as long as we're reasonable about it. For me, my personality type is just, is just not – I just want to outsource all that stuff, and I just know my personality <laughs> type. I will never – I just won't deal with it. I'm not meticulous. I'm just Plus one. <laughs> yeah. The other thing about it <laughs> is that I've been thinking about getting an actual office. And if I had to like go meet with my accountant and my lawyer to be like, okay, now, so for one quarter of the year I work from home and one, you know, three quarters of the year I work from an actual office, like how does that break down? And I don't know, it's just like, it's, it's like this cognitive load to it that is distasteful to me personally. Uh, so, because it wasn't like a massive amount of money for us, I was like, I'd really rather just not even have this on my mind. Yep. So on that same topic, G. Pickin says, on that topic, I know you're not tax people, but today one of my business mentors writes off 100% of all of his vehicles and beat an audit because he says everywhere he goes he talks business. He also claims cable TV as research for commercials, as market research, etc. Yeah, I, I'm not a tax professional, so I just don't know. But if you can get away with it, I guess. I mean, I've seen not. dudes pull receipts out of the garbage at the deli I go to. You know, it's like because mm-hmm. they're obviously they're going to claim it as some kind of business expense because they're having a business meeting. I'm just not that type of person personally. If you know you're that type of person, you're probably not asking this question. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're not going to save a million dollars. It's a percentage of a percentage that you actually save. So it's. I mean, well, it's that's... not no money, but. I'd rather see people put their energy into developing like killer products and like increase their income than worry about like spending half of their time doing accounting and saving receipts and stuff like that. Right. Oh, on that I mean, front, fortunately, I do none. I I spend no time doing accounting or or planning, and any receipt that comes in just sort of goes directly into the accountant drawer. So on that front, I'm 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 doing okay. Whether I'm actually using my time wisely, that's I think a very legitimate question. Right. I think people get it in their head, though, that a tax deduction means if I spend $5 on the business, I don't have to spend $5 on taxes, and that's not the case. It's 
if I spend five dollars on the business, I don't have to I don't have to pay taxes on that five dollars. So if your tax rate is twenty percent, then you're saving a dollar on that five dollars. Yeah, you hear and people so, all the time say, "Oh, but I can write it off." They people say it to me because I have a million phones. They're like, "Oh yeah, but you can write it off," and I'm like, "I still have to pay for them." Yeah, they think it means it's free. <clears throat> but really it's just less money that I have to pay taxes on, which is not insignificant, but it's also not significant. Right. So it's also the, the idea of income versus expenses. Like even if you do everything possible and invent new ways in accounting and all that, the lowest you can get your expenses is zero. Like if you do the same thing on your income side, the most your income will be is who knows, like whatever there is in the world right now, plus another 20,000%. You know, so it's best to focus on income side if you can, but like for me, it's my habit is I'm already taken care of. I'm already doing all the accounting for all my bills. So it's maybe like two minutes of time to collate that, give it to my accountant and get whatever, $200 back, you know, this next year. And so for me, the, the level of effort there is like, okay, that's worth it. And it also kind of, it's interesting to like look at the big picture of like, okay, my business actually used this much. So I actually have an estimate if I wanted to buy an office, you know, how does the, the an actual standalone office compare to a home office? you know, financial-wise, and is that a good investment decision? So that's what I use finances for as decisions, too. But, yeah, deductions are nice to have, but, you know, they're, people put a lot of uh, a lot of weight in them. Uh, tax credits are good, but they're not really given out for many things anymore. Yeah. But, again, go talk to your, go talk to your tax person and make sure that he thinks that he can get it to stand up to an IRS audit and understand the risks behind it because I, I've had other friends that, you know, they wound up going to business lunches like two or three times a week. And, you know, and so they got told, look, you've got to document everything that you're doing at these lunches so that you don't get flagged. And so even if it's legitimate stuff, you know, even if it's not this kind of borderline, you know, risky sounding thing, you still have to keep track of what it's about. Yeah, and even lunches, I, if it's local lunches, like... I think you only claim thirty or fifty percent. So, you yeah. know, if you spend a hundred bucks at a lunch, even if it is, even if you're courting a client, you know, where it's like, yes, this is business, you might only get twenty bucks of a deduction, and based on your tax rate, you might only save four dollars in the end. And so, like yeah. most of the time, unless I'm traveling, I don't count out meals. Meals were just too much of a hassle, and IRS they don't red flag, but they wash those a lot because they're abused. And so for me, I'm like, it's not worth it, even for my highly detailed personality. Yep. Yeah, I do it, but I'm pretty careful about it. So it, you know, I write down, you know, I I was at this thing or I was with these people or whatever. And just make sure that it's covered, and then my accountant and bookkeeper can sort that out. Because you know, I give them a profit and loss statement at the end of the year, and it says in there what it's all for, and then you have all the receipts that they can go back through and say, okay, so you were having lunch with this person talking about this thing. But yeah, I mean, it's a lot of hassle to save three dollars in taxes. So makes me think about it too. All right, uh, next question. Do you guys purchase errors and omissions insurance, and how much? I need to. I keep putting it off. I can kind of convince clients that I don't need it, and so I haven't had to haven't had to do it, but I think it's something I'm going to probably get this year. It's, I've had enough, I'm working with enough larger projects that it's just the coverage of it, not for like the client requirements, but actually having the, you know, the safety net underneath kind of feels like it might be a good thing. Yeah, to me, it's, uh, I had to get it, for a particular proposal I was submitting. Uh, they just required it. They wouldn't consider the proposal if you didn't have it. So I got it. It was cheap. It was easy. It took me no time at all. 
And uh, I think the company I use is called Hiscox, and you can apply right online. And it's, it's, it's so cheap that I don't remember how much it is. It was around 50 bucks at the most per month for you know a million or two million dollars in coverage. Yeah, I've had a few clients request it in my case, but I've always talked out of it. I haven't been sued yet, so it was money saved at this point. <laughs> that could change, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never had that sort of insurance, and I've never, never really needed to. I've never thought about it very much. I guess in one case, there was one client where I was terribly sick, and I was finishing up the project, and I accidentally sent like 80,000 or 90,000 SMSs, which, you know, they're only like two or three cents a piece, but you send enough of them and it adds up. And basically, at first, they were like, do you have any insurance? And I said, no. And they said, oh, okay, fine. And we just sort of agreed to some... Um, amount in the middle of what they had paid and what they had or they needed to still pay me, and we just we just walked away like that. That was the end of the project anyway. That's a tough. Well, at the end of the company, it was a dumb company, but that's a different story. And that's the <laughs> other thing. Like, this is probably going to get really deep, but say you have a million in insurance and you have a successful business and you you know you have stuff, you are more likely if people would want to see you because you have things to take away. If you don't have insurance and you don't have a lot of business assets, and it's like you know, say $5,000 in cash in the bank, no one's going to really want to sue you because you can't pay for anything. Like there's no, it's going to cost them like too much to get it. And so there's kind of this idea of if you have insurance, you actually are more likely to get sued than if you didn't have insurance. And it's, it's really weird. I mean, I wouldn't use that as advice, but that's just something to think about of how, you know, the, the legal mentality works sometimes. I've had a few clients mention that they would like it and that's more or less the reason they cite is that then if they have to come after me for damages, they know that they'll get their money. That is such a turnoff to me. Like if somebody yeah. said that to me, I wouldn't that didn't make work me feel better. <laughs> well, it's like I mean, dating someone only if they're rich. Yeah, it's like a prenup. It's a prenup. Yeah. It's like, oh, we're, we're looking to sue somebody. Have you got insurance? Yeah. I mean, I know. it's like I said, I, would, I wouldn't have it if it wasn't, you know, I had a, a, a done deal. It was a slam dunk. They were like, they contacted me. We want to hire you for this, you know, and here's some, like, idiosyncrasies of our billing system and yada, yada, and also you have to have errors and emissions insurance. I, I wouldn't have it if it wasn't for that. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said earlier, I would just fold my business if somebody sued me. Yep. All right. Another question on the contract which we link to in the chat. If I'm starting my SaaS business, I plan to get up a landing page and collect emails and then start the build-up. I plan to invite closed alpha and then go to invite beta. Start creating blog content. What else should I do to build up to launch? Of course, I'm building the actual SaaS product at the same time, just trying to make sure at launch time it's ready to go. Do we have a couple, like, 20 hours to at least get into the basics of that, or? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, taxes. yeah, like, it can be as simple as you want it to be, or it could be as advanced. I mean, there's, uh, what's it, Jeff Walker has made, I don't know how many millions on his product teaching people how to launch and basically launch businesses and products. And then I've taken another class, I think I paid 2500 or something for that one. Like, there's a lot in there. Basically, I guess it sums down to like, you know, you need to build something people are going to actually value and it actually solves a problem for them or makes them more money or some something of value. And you just need to tell people about it. You know, it could be your writing blog, like you said, or it could be you're collecting email and marketing to them or you're on social media. I mean, there's 
thousands upon thousands of different ways you can do to do it, and it's going to depend on what you like to do. You know, do you like writing? Do you like producing video? Do you like going to conferences and talking to people one on one? And also, you got to count for your time. I mean, it's. I heard something, some advice, and I laughed at it because I thought she was being silly. That said, that for every hour you spend like building your product, like development, you're going to spend about 10 hours marketing. And I, you know, a couple of years later, I'm actually thinking that's actually pretty close estimates. It's making the product is actually the easy part. It's marketing it is the hard part, and that's where all your time is spent. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It seems impossible that that could be true at the outset because that's where a lot of the work is, a lot of the you know, initial build is, you know, it's super time consuming and that's the thing that you're focused on. But the difference between, you know, a successful SaaS and an unsuccessful SaaS that might even have better features can have a lot to do with things like, you know, content marketing, like Eric said, and also education for the user groups uh, or the, your, your existing user base, onboarding. There's a million things that can make, you know, something that doesn't have feature parity with something else much more successful. And I mean, I think it's a no brainer that yes, you should be collecting emails. If, I mean, if I've learned nothing else from being on this podcast, it's the importance of getting emails. Everybody who's started a list wishes they were collecting emails earlier. So I think it's good that this person who asked the question has got a landing page, is collecting emails, and then you're going to do some kind of content marketing to get the word out there. And there's about a dozen different ways you could do that. You know, you could guest on podcasts, you can guest blog, you can blog on your own blog, you can do your own podcast, you can speak at, at live conferences or, you know, whatever, meetups and live events. You could write a book about what the problem that your SaaS solves. There's a ton of things, like Eric said, it's like whichever one is the most comfortable. You're not going to do them all. You're going to do the ones that are most comfortable for you. Could be webinars, writing books, speaking live, blah, blah, blah. And one thing I just looked, I'm, you know, quote, launching a product, but it's basically a productized consulting where it's, I'm still doing the work and I just looked, I've spent 50 hours on it in about three months and I just, like a week ago or two weeks ago, made a landing page for it. Like, all of my marketing, all that stuff's been one-on-one. Like, I've been emailing people I know, talking to my network, and basically getting on the phone or on Skype with people and going through, like, what their problems are and evolving that. And that's 50-something hours. And the service is, like, if you count like building the service like close to how writing software is, I think I might have spent like maybe five or ten hours. So it's like that's I think actually how products are, especially in the beginning. Like you just got to do a lot of that, a lot of that marketing, a lot of the finding out. Like you know who's this going for? What's the audience like? So I mean I did this on purpose. I wanted to front load it because I didn't want to do a lot of uh, marketing at first with not know who I'm actually targeting, not know what they're wanting. And so doing the sales, find out who it is, it's going to save me time later on if I have to change it or like, oh, this is, you know, this isn't actually a painful problem for people. I'm actually the CTO, like as a, on a retainer gig, I'm the CTO of a startup that's a SaaS startup called Sticky Albums. And there, I think right now there are 10 employees, two of them do development. The rest of them are either customer service, marketing, social media. It's a, the, the actual development part is as important as it is, if it was just us doing development, there'd be no product. Like mm. there needs to be education and marketing and outreach and all the social media stuff, everything. It's you can't skip it. Like maybe at the beginning you won't have it, but I think you'll have a better launch if you do have some kind of content marketing plan in place. Yeah, and especially if it's a SaaS. And I think the person who asked was talking about they're going to do like a beta and alpha rollouts and stuff like that. If you have something people can use, you can market it like crazy before the launch and let people in one-on-one and work with them one-on-one 
And you're going to get a lot of good feedback from that. And, you know, if you're using their marketing in a way where it's building your list, like you might not even need to do a launch. You might just be able to in beta or in alpha get enough people where it's successful. And then launch is just like, yeah, we're letting anyone in now. You don't have to have like a full on event for it. Yeah. I'm just kind of taking mental notes because I'm going through the same kind of thing right now. A couple of ideas I've got. I mean, I, I, I must say I found the marketing challenge to be a combination of frustrating and fascinating and rewarding. That like, So I've got my ebook that I put out, I guess, about like three months ago at this point, maybe a little more. And on the one hand, I'm like, wow, I've gotten people from around the world to buy, buy this book. I have no idea who these people are. I'm sure there are many more people who would benefit from it. How do I reach them? And I've been trying a bunch of different things, and some work well and some work poorly. And as I said, it's this combination of frustration and fascination to sort of see what works and then try to learn from other people and get better at it. And I'm sure that, as with everything in life, sort of you learn as you go along, and each one will, will improve as I learn more lessons. So I would say in some ways, like, yes, it's important to plan. Yes, it's important to think about it. But to some degree, the sooner you start, the sooner you're going to make mistakes and you'll learn from those mistakes and you'll you'll get feedback. And I must say the feedback actually has been, I think I've mentioned this on previous podcasts, has been also a, a very pleasant surprise that if you have a mailing list and if you're writing to it, people will write back to you if you ask them to and you're going to get unbelievable feedback that will improve your product dramatically. So release early and often and ask for people's feedback and you'll get it and it'll, it'll only be to everyone's benefit. Okay, next question. Contract resolution. Do you guys put a clause in about all disputes to be resolved through binding arbitration and contracts? And can that really hold up? No, and I don't know. I think I, I don't know if it's arbitration. It might be mediation. I have something like that. I don't think it can hold up if you force it. I think people can go through that and then they can actually say this isn't working. We're taking it to the full legal system. You know, basically like take it to the, a new, you know, above someone's head. But it's always good to at least try arbitration and at least mediation just because that's going to be a lot less expense on you. But like Jonathan said, it might just be like if it gets to that point, like screw it, like walk away. Yeah, mm. I having been on the inside of a lawsuit at a software development firm that dragged on for years, as soon as I was sure it was serious, I would just be like, you know, what does it say? All disputes can resolve by suing me out of existence. I mean, basically, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> I would just say, here's my, here's the contents of my bank account. I'll start a new business. It's a life-sucking, soul-sucking, family-destroying process. There's no contract that, even if you win, I, I just can't. We're not doing the kinds of businesses that defending a lawsuit makes sense. I mean, maybe Eric is, I don't know, but I'm not doing the kind of business that defending a lawsuit makes any sense at all. Yeah. Look, I've seen that. I, I was called in to potentially be an expert witness for a company that was going through a lawsuit. I mean, I've seen in my family had there were a few lawsuits as well, but this was the, I guess, just about, I guess, about eight months ago. In the end, uh, it, it didn't work out. It was sort of family owned. It grew quite a bit. They had a dispute with some of their original contractors, and you could see this. I think they said it had been dragged on, dragging on for three years or something. It was, as Jonathan said, like soul sucking. They were just completely just completely despondent over the fact that this thing had gone on and on and on and was costing them time, not enough to hire me as an expert with this, it would seem, but they wanted it to be over. All right. Regarding the house expense, Reuven, your business pays you and you expense a share of it? I can restate that. Are you like paying for your mortgage and your 
utilities and all that out of personal and business then gives you money or does your business have like paying directly to the utility company or something else? And for me, I just, I pay for it out of my personal stuff. Business doesn't reimburse me or anything. And then tax-wise, I get a little bit of a write-off because it's a shared expense. So the way we do it, so now you're going to find out how little I know, is we pay it personally, and then we pass the to the accountant for that amount of money that we paid as if the business had paid it. Whether it like in the end, it's it's some degree funny money, right? Because it just means my salary and my taxes are adjusted. Yeah, that's more or less what I do. I pay my mortgage and then I give the information to my accountant. But then I've never really gone through the trouble of actually expensing house. But that's what I oh, would do. Oh, the too. mortgage. The mortgage we definitely the the business does not pay for the mortgage at all. And I remember raising this with the accountant when we bought our house. He said, "You do not want to do that." Again, this might be a national thing, but he said. You don't want your business to own the house or even part of it because, first of all, zoning issues. Second of all, do you really want, if your business gets sold or goes bankrupt or whatever, to lose your house or part of it? Yeah, that's the that's the reason why people say don't take out a second mortgage to start a business because if your business fails, you lose your business and you potentially lose your house too. Everything about my business when I first set it up was oriented around minimizing the risk of threatening my personal life, even though I don't think anything I do is really risky. I just wanted, I didn't want to have that conversation with my wife, basically. Like, mm-hmm. she, I wanted her to be able to be like, whatever, he can do any crazy thing he wants, like marketing-wise or new products, whatever, crazy clients, and just, it just never have any emotional impact on our feeling of personal security. So even if I, and that actually, now that I think of it, that was a factor when I was deciding whether or not to write off the home office. I like didn't want to have anything with my business to have anything to do with the house. Yeah. Okay. Next one. What are your favorite prototyping tools when market testing a new product? Words. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've found like I've, I've done the build of MVP and have software people can try. I've done the uh, what is it? Balsamic mockups, having mockups for people to look at. I found it like if people can't understand the gist of the idea and actually get in a conversation about it they don't care about the problem that you're trying to solve enough to make it into a product. You know, if they're like, oh, that sounds nice, let me see some screenshots, they're not interested. If they're like, oh my God, let's talk for three hours about the problem and how much it annoys me and makes my business, you know, a headache, that means you have you have something you can work on. And at that point, they should just want to like talk to you and jump at you and try to get as much attention from you as they can because it's such a big painful thing. So I don't really use prototyping tools anymore. I might mock something up in HTML and send a screenshot to someone if it's like a very detailed thing of like, do you like it looking this way or this way? But not for actually like uh, building a new product or that type of idea. Totally second that. It's all about the problem you're solving. You should be able to say to somebody in a sentence, two sentences maximum, what the thing does. And if they don't immediately say, how do you do that? Then you've got to keep looking. It's like... or the meme, shut up and take my money. Yes, right. If they're like, huh, that's interesting, you you got to keep working on your pitch or your idea. I'm sure so, I'm sure everyone else... I was about to say, that's really interesting, but... <laughs> I'm sure everyone's saying like, oh, but nobody would have said that about Twitter or a million other things. And yeah, I'm not saying you can't make it happen, you can't get lucky, but it's way easier if you just are solving an expensive problem and you tell it to someone who has that problem, and they're just like, take my money. Like, when's it going to be done? Can't wait. It's so much easier. Something like Twitter, 
or it's just like such a lucky home run, if you ask me. Like I dig Twitter and everything, but I don't think anybody felt like they had a problem that Twitter solves. Yeah. And so it's I'm not saying you can't make the next Twitter. That's definitely that's definitely not what I'm saying. But you can certainly make your life a lot easier if you keep zeroing in on what that expensive problem is that you're solving, and and better yet, who you're solving it for specifically. You're solving it for dentists. You're solving it for, you know, whatever. I solve this expensive problem for this particular group of people. It's really easy then to get in front of that group of people and say, hey, is this actually a problem that, you know, this is a problem I recognized in your business. Do you recognize it? Do you think it's a problem? I'm sure anybody out there that's a developer has had the experience of seeing a massive inefficiency in a market or in a vertical and being like, I could solve that with software, no problem. And then you do it and no one cares because they don't think it's a problem. Paper's fine. Excel's fine. It's not, we don't care. Oh. Thing that's driving oh. nuts. Well, I mean, for myself, I mean, I've done Ruby on Rails for over 10 years now. So, like, you know, I obviously know how to throw data in a database. My customer database that has all of my clients, all of my people who buy ebooks, all that stuff, newsletter subscribers, that is just a bunch of scripts that makes a CSV file. I, and it's because that, I just care about seeing who's looking at what and doing what the CSV and all the stuff in Excel is good enough for me and it's not a huge pain versus actually creating software and going through all that process. I've done that before and it's just so painful that having the least, you know, the least bad option is fine for me and lets me move on and actually do stuff to actually, you know, improve my business or do things like that. You know, so if someone came to me like, you know, we can digitize this and make it completely database and all the fun stuff and HXE like I used to have, I'd be like, it's that's interesting, but I really don't care. Like, I'm fine with what I have. I'm totally there with you. It's like mm-hmm. I've done enough. I've written enough software where I'm like, I don't want to be debugging my personal systems. I want it to be brain dead simple, and I'm happy to do manual effort to keep them up to date as long as I can do that without disconnect. Sort of, I'm, the word I'm thinking of is denormalizing my own data, which is where I have dependencies between two different spreadsheets. That would I would be incapable of keeping them up to date in two places. So I, my personal situation is kind of a mis- mishmash like that too, where it's like I just have like a bunch of, every time I do a new proposal, I grab the last proposal and I change it. So anyway, make sure you're solving an expensive problem before you build, you know, you spend 100 hours building on MVP. Yep. All right. If I have a friend come to me with an idea for an app or service, of course everyone has these ideas, yes. But I actually like this one. They have the idea. They will do the marketing. But if I'm going to partner with them, what's a fair percentage? I thought maybe front load initial income to repay my investment and then do a 51-49 split. Is that reasonable? Have you guys done any of these types of arrangements? I wouldn't normally, but building MRR is smart if it's something they will run longer term. What is MRR? Monthly re- uh, recurring revenue. Ah. Gotcha. There's there's a lot to unpack in that. I mean, oh yeah, basically it's like technical founder versus uh, non-technical founder. I mean, the my questions up front is: Is this person going to be doing marketing beforehand? How good are they at marketing? Are they guaranteeing that they can get results? Have they had past results? You can say like, oh, they've done this before in this exact same space. You know, what kind of return are you looking at? Do you have savings, or is this going to like actually eat into um, your actual income levels, you know, after after it's built, are you going to maintain it or are they going to maintain it? What are they going to do marketing after it's launched? I mean, that's basically any kind of partnership, especially like, you know, for business stuff, like 
would you marry this person is basically what you're coming down to. You know, would you spend 20, 30 years with them? And I think, I don't remember who it is, but so I'm not going to say, but I have one, people, one person was saying, like, he actually spends more time with his business partner than his actual life partner um, because it's that, it's that deep of a relationship. So I think you need to think about it like that. My own and thing, I, yeah, I almost never do partnerships. I've done it once, and then I almost did it a second time, and we were very clear on the second time up front of like, this is how it would work, and the partnership didn't work out, and so we just walked away still friends. The first time it just petered out because people were, they just they committed to more than what they could do, and the business didn't turn out what they thought. I have to say that I've never done this just because I've never run into a situation where I felt like it was worth it. So you can take that for what it's worth. I think it takes a really specific combination of things in order to make it worth it, and I haven't found that yet. Yeah, I mean, you have to be careful. Like This, it seems a bit better, but I've I've heard of people, and I've had a couple come to me where they have an idea and they want half the business for coming to someone with the idea that's idea like I'll pay you five bucks for your idea and then I get the whole business if you really want to get down to it you know the building of the product like we talked about earlier the marketing of the product and then keeping it going especially through the first you know is this a SaaS I think it's a SaaS so the first what three to ten years that's the critical part and if you can't get through that then you know maybe look somewhere else Um, I would even recommend starting with a smaller product yeah and to tie it back into what we were talking about before it sounds like no big deal when someone comes to you and says hey because I was well-known for like mobile apps. Hey, I've got this great idea for an app. Everybody I'm related to has a great idea for an app. Everybody that they're friends with has a great idea for an app. And so like every month I get a half a dozen ideas for a, an amazing app. And there's not one in the app store. It's obvious. I can't believe it. And <laughs> the guy that worked on our house was like, oh, I've got an idea for an app. So the thing that's probably, you know, it seems like ah, it's no big deal. And sometimes the apps are really easy. You're like, oh, it's just like a simple, cal- it's like a, essentially a calculator. And I think two occasions where I've entertained the idea, in one occasion, it was so easy that I just built it for the dude and gave it to him because he was so, like, so cute about it. You know, he's just, like, so, like, oh, this is, this would be so great. It was kind of a funny idea. I built it in a day, maybe, and I just gave it to him. And months after, years after, oh, I want to update the app. Oh, it, there's something wrong. It's not downloading. Oh, it's not been submitted to the... There's, like, ongoing... <laughs> issues with this thing that I gave to the guy and then in the other situation where we didn't go through with it the thing you don't realize is that in that first initial thing is that it is like a marriage like you're you're hooked together and speaking you know we've been talking about taxes earlier I, I partnered with somebody they set up a corporation and they had me associated with it in some way now all of a sudden I'm getting 1099s for like stuff they wanted to write off and like turned into like it complicated my personal taxes not my personal taxes my business taxes it's like it's not uh, I guess what I'm saying is it's not something to enter into lightly and if you're going to actually do something and deliver something it's not going to go away so it's not like it, oh it's just 10 hours one weekend it's going to keep coming up so you got to you got to really be into it and you need to be with someone that it's it can't be a one-sided relationship you know, it's got to be someone who actually has, you know, if I'm a developer and someone comes to me, they need to be like a mad marketer, like a crazy, like they've got the idea great, but they need to do the all the marketing, all the sales, and they need to have, just like I do, they need to have proof that they've done this in the past and that they have successfully done this in the past the way I've successfully built apps in the past. 
So if they're just coming to you and it's like your brother-in-law and like, oh, I've got a great idea, we're going to be rich, no, start a band. Like <laughs> the odds of the odds of getting rich with a band are higher than with a, a iOS app. But you have to remember, like, if you're working on, you know, if 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 you're partnering with someone, you're basically investing in this all of your time. And so the question is, would you like, would you as an investor put in five thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand dollars to this business? And if the answer is yes, then well, yeah, maybe it's worth it. But yeah, don't see I it as. If they have, if the idea is that great, go get a VC, go get an angel investor, and pay me. Yep. Yeah, and the the person who asked it asked the follow up question, like even if it's not like a small scale app or service, um, so it's like a like a side app or whatever. And I think it a lot of this still applies. It's you know even if it only takes twenty hours of your time, is it twenty hours now and then a few hours here and there? And like we were talking about corporation liability stuff earlier, so that's in my head. Like I don't remember how it works, but if you don't set up a part like a specific like LLC, LLP, corporation, whatever, you might fall under a partnership thing, which means even if you write the code now and you walk away from it, if they put in proprietary code into it later on, you might be able to be sued on a lawsuit and your business might be dragged in or maybe even your personal stuff. So, you know, it is a marriage. It is a long-term thing. You know, like make sure all that stuff's up front. Make, I mean, we've said it, but make sure you trust this person. I mean, if you're going to be, you know, get into business with them, make sure that, you know, they're not some crazy person or they're not going to, you know, do weird stuff because it's also going to reflect on you and on your brand. You know, that's, there's a lot to think about here. Yeah, it's easy to take it lightly, especially if you look at it and you can tell that the scope of work is very, very small. And you're like, oh, I might as well do this. I'm not, I mean, it's either this or I'm going to go watch the game on Sunday. I might as well just do this. But you're opening yourself up to all sorts of opportunity, but also liability. So, yeah, every client I've had has come back and said, "I want, I want more than just this." So, one thing you might be able to do, uh, if, if I'm, you know, in the context of a software developer, if you, if you really want to do, it, like, you think it's going to be a fun app, kind of like what Jonathan did, maybe you create the app on your own, open source it, put it out there, and tell the guy, "Here's the whole app. If you want to use it and make a business out of it, feel free." I'm not liable. I'm not on the hook. If you want to do something later on, we can talk about a paid engagement. And that way you get kind of the fun experience, but you're more off the hook than anything else. Most businesses, I think, would be kind of mad if you if you suppose, like, I'm going to put all your code out there in public. Yeah. But, you know, that might kind of put it, you know, kind of shine a little light on the amount of effort you're going to put into it. That's a really interesting idea that has never occurred to me. But I, I can tell you that in my particular situations, everybody who comes to me with these ideas like wants you to sign an NDA first because they think they're the oh, way yeah. to keep jobs, and you know this is a million dollar idea, and if you you know if you just do this, you can get it on the ground floor. So the idea of open source, I mean, it's actually kind of hilarious because you don't need the permission. They just came to you with this idea, and you'd be like, yeah, I wrote all the code this weekend. Here's a link to it. And so the funny thing is, like, is there a way to open source something that's not on your GitHub account, like on like a generic public repo, like maybe Apache Software Foundation or something? They wouldn't take it. it yeah, I mean, know. you probably could, or you could just create an anonymous one and, like, you know, developer 101, and he just has a repo in there. Yeah. <laughs> developer and Joe. We'll race, we'll race to GitHub <laughs> to, to create open source software at github.com. Yep. All right, well, I think we've uh, kind of talked for a while. Should we do some picks and then wrap up the show? Sure. All right, Eric, you're on the left. You can go first. I'm on the right on my screen. What are you talking about? Um, 
I don't I don't know if I might have picked this earlier, but I recently reread it. It's a book from Amy Hoy. It's called Just Fucking Ship. It's a short book, but it basically outlines a lot of the process of 30 by 500 as far as like, you know, kind of getting over yourself and actually focusing on stuff. I reread it, I think, last this last weekend. And I think a lot of the concepts in it is actually really good to apply to the questions we got now, like, you know, launching, start with something small, you know, make sure it's actually something people care about and going to solve a pain. It's a, it's a great book. I would recommend it if you're even considering building products. Uh, this kind of is, I think Alex helped you, but this is like basically Amy Hoy's philosophy on how to build products. And she's, I don't remember how, how much her, her and her students have done, but they've done quite a bit of business just for being small and, you know, non-venture back and all that. Awesome. Jonathan, what are your picks? Also a book, well, two books, actually. Um, first, I'll say uh, Complete Plus One on JFS. It's a short read and really good. A good companion read for that would be The Brain Audit by Sean D'Souza, which also focuses on making sure you're solving a problem, but the, the sort of crux of The Brain Audit is around, you know, he basically has this metaphor of seven bags on a conveyor belt at the airport, and the customer's not going to leave the airport until they pick up all seven of their bags. If they only pick up six, they're just going to stand there while the bags go around and around and around until they pick up the last bag. The last bag shows up. And so the seven bags are basically seven different things that you need to answer in the prospect's mind to get them to say, you know, to pull the trigger basically, to say like, oh, you know what, this is a problem that I have, this is a feasible solution, the price is reasonable, it's urgent, my wife or husband will not make fun of me for doing it, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these things. It's fabulous and also short. Uh, so I highly recommend the Brain Audit. And then just on a, a sort of non-business note, I'm reading uh, The Silkworm, which is a book by J.K. Rowling that she wrote under a pen name that is just amazing. It's like an amazing detective novel. It's actually the second book. The first one was called Cuckoo's Calling. But if anybody's into like hard-boiled detective fiction, it's great. So those are my two. Awesome. Reuven? Uh, so I've just got one pick this week, and one of you, maybe more, I think picked it recently. It's uh, called The Positioning Manual for Technical Firms by Philip Morgan. I'm about halfway, two-thirds of the way through it. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm, I'm really be, uh, you know, known for training in terms of services, in terms of products, and I would say as good as the advice is, and it is excellent, he has incredible empathy for the pain of doing the positioning. And he says, yes, this is going to hurt. Yes, it means turning away business. Yes, it's okay. That's normal. And having him say that multiple times in the book was refreshing. So I definitely recommend people go out and get it. It's not expensive at all. And I think it's going to more than pay for itself in the very, very near future. Nice. All right. I've got a few picks. Uh, the first one's I got a new keyboard. And the camera's on so I can hold it up. Isn't it beautiful? Uh, it's the Wasty Code Keyboard. It does awesome stuff, like you can make the keys, the, they're LED backlit, so I just turn the lights on in my keys. But it has the mechanical switches in it. I know people get all religious about those. It's the Cherry MX Clear uh, ones, and I like them. So, yeah, so that's been really nice. I was using just the Apple uh, aluminum keyboard before, and this one's just a little more comfortable, and I feel like I type a little faster on it. I don't know if that's the case, but it feels like it. And then I had to get this fat foam uh, wrist rest for it, and I, I'm liking that too. Um, I've also read a couple of books lately. One of them is called Ready Player One by Ernest Clive, I think is his name. It's a fun book. If you played games in the 80s, 
uh, computer games uh, or arcade games. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. It's kind of an adventure book in a virtual reality, and it's it's kind of right up people's alley if they're technical. And I think it's an adventure that other people would enjoy, you know, maybe not identify with quite as much. The other book I've been reading is Mastery by Robert Greene. And I have to say that the first part of the book I didn't really enjoy, like the first... I'm listening to it on Audible, so I want to say like the first half hour. But anyway, uh, after that, it's been really good. Lots of stories about people who mastered their fields and people that we consider to be people who are kind of up there in the higher echelon of famous scientists and stuff. So anyway, awesome, awesome book. So those are my picks. And I guess that's it. So uh, thank you all for listening. And uh, we will be back again doing this in another month. And we're on every week. Uh, Just go listen to us. Go find us on iTunes, uh, The Freelancer Show. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum.